Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you and be with you this morning. Um, if you've got that Titus 3 passage open in front of you, that could be a good thing. Um, and if you're someone who likes to follow outlines, that was, there was one on the way in. And just one thing to quickly make clear here, if you've got that outline in front of you and opened up, the third point there is called enjoy the truth about God's kindness. Well, the three points under that are just sub-points. Okay, so there's not actually eight points to the sermon, just to help. Okay, so there you go. That, all, all the other points are, are main points. So you might want to underline the main points if you're as finicky about, about these things as I am. <laughs> so how do we promote um, the truly good life in our society? Uh, when, when there are so many different versions of what the good life looks like and how we get it, How can we as Christians bring to our society a vision of the good life that's true and compelling? The need for a clear vision of this in our society is pretty obvious, I think, don't you think? We live in a culture where people don't trust their leaders. Um, Often that's warranted because of their corruption. We live in a harsh, loveless society and a selfish society where it's each one to his own. We live in a culture where there is a fear of crime and so people retreat to their homes as their castles and then they feel distant from people and want more connection. Um, We live in a culture in which people routinely overeat. Well, Well, this was first century Crete. Paul wrote to Titus in Crete in chapter 1 verse 12, he says that one of Crete's own prophets has said, Um, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Um, It could just as easily be a description of 21st century Western culture. So how do we live as Christians in a dishonest, harsh and selfish culture? How can we live in such a way um, that we promote the truly good life um, in in our situation? And I think that's the kind of question that we need help with each day as we um, seek to live for Christ in a society um, that finds truth in all kinds of places, um, but rarely in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, here's where we're going today. The passage clearly shows us that believing the gospel saves us and that it creates the good life. And that's why Paul has a trustworthy gospel statement right in the centre of this passage. Um, And and then he instructs Titus in verse 8 to stress the gospel. And so this talk will stress the gospel. (laughs) Um, Most of our time will be on that. Um, And and then at the end, we'll see how important that it is um, that we live um, gospel-shaped lives um, in our society. Now, before we get to that rich gospel statement, Paul shows us that we must first face the truth about ourselves and what we are really like, some hard truths about what we are really like. Otherwise, um, we will never think that we need to turn to God as our saviour and 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 that we don't need him to rescue us and to trust him in our lives. So see the truth about ourselves that we are confronted with in verse 3. At one time... Uh, We too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. 
Paul's describing the common human condition of our sinfulness here. It wasn't just a problem peculiar to Crete where Titus is. He includes himself here too by saying at one time we too were foolish and disobedient. Before we can know God as our saviour, um, our relationship um, with God was actually it was a complete mess. Notice, we were foolish and disobedient. A fool is someone who says in his heart, there is no God. Um, Psalm 14 says that. And it's not the avowed atheist that is in mind here. It's someone who lives as if God doesn't exist. Ignoring God is the definition of the fool. The fool rejects God's rule and wants to rule their own life. And Paul shows here that that rejection of God affects everything else. It affects our thinking. We were foolish and deceived. It affects our behaviour. We were disobedient to God and enslaved to behaving in that foolishness and disobedience. Um, it affects our desires. The desires that drive this behaviour are, uh, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, cravings of our flesh. All kinds of passions and desires that come from our sinful state, that flow from the depths of our hearts. And that rejection of God, that foolishness, affects our relationships. Instead of love, there is malice, envy, hatred. Uh, we don't like hearing this negative assessment of our true nature. And we might even think that it's a bit harsh. I mean, living in malice and envy, really? They're, they're very strong words, aren't they? But when we consider that malice is wishing bad things would happen to people and, and envy is wishing that good things hadn't happened to people, can any of us really say that never, de never deep down have we had something of that kind of attitude within? And I'll put it to you that one of the reasons we don't like hearing this assessment of our true nature um, is because of our, our, our Western culture and its influence. We are so much these days on about self-esteem and self-image and about feeling good about myself. And we pretend that we are wonderful people and we ignore evidence to the contrary to that. And the evidence to the contrary is all around us and as Paul shows us, it is within us. And we are deceived if we don't see that. We actually had that in that little reading that Tyler gave us before we confessed our sins today. We're deceived if we don't see that our sin. But if the, if the Bible's assessment of our true nature um, is true, um, we can give up the constant and tiring sort of managing of our image. And we can stop pretending that there is no problem with the state, with the state of our hearts. Well, from verse 4, we have one of those wonderful but, but God phrases in the Bible. But God does something about our foolishness and our disobedience. And here is this trustworthy gospel saying that Titus is to stress so that those who believe the gospel will be devoted to doing what is good. And it's all about how God saves us and why he saves us. He starts by saying, God saving us shows his immense kindness to us. That's kind of evident already from what we've seen in verse 3, isn't it? 
that if God would step in and rescue and save, and save sinners, that's an act of kindness. And in fact, that's the other key feature of this trustworthy saying in verses 4 to 7. It highlights the character of this God who saves us. Not only is he kind, he is loving, he is merciful, he is generous, um, he is gracious um, towards us, all in this very short few verses. It's a rich statement in so many ways, packed with ideas that help us to grasp what God's salvation is like and why God would save us. Ideas that Paul unpacks at more length in others of his letters, but he just summarises here. And he shows how the whole Godhead is involved in our salvation, Father and Son um, and Spirit. And we're going to use that as a frame um, for us to navigate um, what is said, uh, said here. And remember where this is heading. Titus is to stress these things because believing the gospel is what promotes the truly good life. Well, firstly, um, the, father, the Father is merciful. See it in verse 5? He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Imagine um, that God is deciding whether to save us. And imagine that much like we may do when facing a decision, I'm the kind of person who does this kind of thing, draw up on a, short of on a piece of paper, two columns, all the pros and cons involved in the decision. Um, what's on the cons side? What are the reasons why God should condemn us? Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, um, malicious, envious, hated, hating, and that's just from this list in Titus. There would be lots of other things, of course. Um, what's on the pros column? What's in the list of reasons about why God should save us? Nothing. When he looks at us, there is no reason why God should save us. Um, but then God writes across the page in kind of bold, permanent marker, my kindness, my love, my mercy. He didn't look at the page and conclude that on balance we're not too bad. He didn't look at the page and see some potential for self-improvement. He saw a thousand reasons to condemn us. What does verse 5 say? He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. It's such a clear statement of what we've been looking at here, isn't it? Here is the reason for our acceptance by God, the only grounds any of us can have confidence that God accepts us and that we have hope and a future. God has mercy on sinners. And, um, and it's worth asking ourselves, um, how would I complete that sentence, that God accepts me because? Everyone answers that question somehow. And if there is any thought there that it's because of something that I have done, then I'm not saved. Saving faith involves stripping away faith in ourselves and putting our trust in God's mercy, our true and our only hope. And if you think that you're inherently acceptable or that God should just accept everyone regardless of how they treat him, then you are not saved. You need to reread verse 3 and recognise that because of what we are really like, we deserve God's justice. His, his kindness doesn't cancel out his justice. We deserve God's punishment for our sin. God must be just. 
But our salvation begins with the mercy of God the Father. And that's important. Um, uh, His salvation all begins with God's rich mercy towards us. He took pity on our poor state and in his kindness and mercy he rescued us. So that's the mercy of the Father. So to the grace of the Son, and especially in verses 4 and 7, um, there was a point in time, as verse 4 um, puts it, when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared. His kindness and love had been there all along, kindness and love at the centre of God's being. But in history, that kindness and love appeared. At that moment of the first Christmas day, his kindness and love became visible. Uh, people had heard of the love of God down through the centuries, um, through the prophets, and then this kindness and love was incarnate. It could be seen and it could be touched. And his kindness and love reached a climax as God gave what was most precious to him, his own son, to be a human and to die as a criminal. How great is the love and kindness of God? Look at the crib, look at the cross, uh, look at God giving his own um, beloved son. And in verse 7, in just two phrases, what Jesus has won for us at the cross is captured. When we choose to um, ignore and disobey God, uh, we become his enemies, we become his rebels under his judgment. And our future was condemnation and death. And before there could be um, any reconciliation between, between us and God, our God had to deal with our disobedience. The penalty for our rebellion had to be paid. And it's in God's kindness and love that God steps in. God the Father sent his Son to die in our place. And the Son willingly came to die in our place in perfect obedience to his Father's will. And as a result of Jesus' death, verse 7 says, we have been justified. It's a legal term. It means to be declared right by a judge. The charge against us is that we're guilty for our foolish disobedience. We stand before our judge condemned. But then the kindness of God intervenes And the sentence we deserve is passed on on him. He dies in our place and bears our penalty for us. And as a result, the verdict against us is no longer condemned. We're innocent. We're justified. It's the kindness and love of God. And then secondly, as a result, we receive life. See it in verse 7, having been justified by his grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. To receive God's salvation is to now have the hope of eternal life. So justification is focused on the present, I'm now right with God, but it's also forward-looking because having been justified by his grace, we become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Now, heirs are children with the rights of an inheritance. We are now in Christ, God's children, brought into his family, and we look forward to an eternal inheritance that the Father uh, will give us. Uh, In my school years, I had a friend that I spent a fair bit of time with, and I enjoyed meals at his home, and sometimes I stayed over on a Saturday night, 
and we enjoyed tennis and we enjoyed games of snooker on their full-size snooker table. How about that, hey? Uh, <laughs> I was welcomed by his parents for the sake of their son. It was my relationship with him that meant that I sat down at their dinner table, that I enjoyed their company, that I stayed overnight. Well, how much more does God delight to welcome us into his family for the sake of his son? That our standing before God has changed right here and now for the sake of his son. We are brought into his family as his children now and we look forward to an eternal inheritance. We're still waiting for the final judgment day. Because we are now justified, then on that day we will hear the not guilty verdict. But we'll not only be acquitted, our hope is eternal life. Our hope is the life of the coming age and all that that holds for us. We'll have a new life in a renewed world, far better than even the best of experiences we could ever even imagine having in this life. Our future was eternal death and in Christ it's now eternal life. Such is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what about the work of the Spirit in our salvation? We mustn't neglect the work of the Spirit in our salvation. And Paul certainly doesn't here. In fact, in verses 5 to 6, it's the first thing he mentions after describing the mercy of God the Father. If he was going to move through things chronologically, he'd go from the mercy of the Father to the appearance of the Son um, to the pouring out of the Spirit. But it seems that Paul is putting the Spirit early on because of how we experience our salvation. We need the prior work of the Spirit to open our blind eyes and to renew our dead hearts so that we can put our trust in Jesus and all that he has done for us. And that's the work of the Spirit that's highlighted here. To be sure, the work of the Spirit is intimately connected with the work of Christ. The Spirit is poured out on us generously, Paul says here, through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And we receive the Spirit from the Father and the Son. He says here, not like pouring out a cup of water, but like standing under a waterfall with a constant rush overflowing uh, over us. It's poured out on us. The Spirit is poured out on all who believe we receive God's fatherly presence um, in our hearts by the Spirit. But the work of the Spirit is described here as rebirth and renewal. Rebirth is often translated regeneration. We're familiar with it when we see signs about bushland being regenerated. You know, don't step on this area, it's being regenerated. So we're used to thinking of it as kind of an improvement in the vegetation. But biblical regeneration is more than a bit of improvement. Rebirth captures it well. We are dead and then we are reborn. It's not that we're living badly and then we look a little bit better after, a bit, after some work of God's regeneration. No, we were dead in our sin and then we are reborn. And it says here the washing of rebirth. You see, Jesus' cleansing of our sins, his washing us clean, is so thorough that we are reborn. We are washed clean and then we begin to live a new life. Um, 
the word renewal here describes the same kind of radical transformation. We often use the word renewal to mean repeat. You know, uh, you go and renew a library book. And that just means I continue to receive what I received before. But when God saves us and pours out his spirit on us, it's not merely newness in time, it's newness in nature. Something completely new is happening. Remember in verse 3, we were deceived and enslaved. We couldn't turn to God because we were in chains. We didn't want to turn to him because we were deceived. And so when the kindness and love of God appeared in Jesus, opening the door of eternal life, it made absolutely no difference to us. Left to ourselves, none of us would enter because we're deceived and we're enslaved unless we become new people with new hearts and new desires. And then when the Spirit works in us, we will want eternal life. We'll want to walk through the door that Christ opens us and we'll want to live a new life. So the language of rebirth and renewal is another way that this passage shows us that if we are to be saved, then God must do it. He has not only done all that is needed in the person of Jesus in history, but he gives us the spirit to give us new life. Just like a baby can't decide to be born, neither can we decide to be born again in God's kindness and love. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We might describe becoming a Christian from our side as a decision to follow Jesus, sure, but but the inner work of the spirit is what makes that possible. So God in his kindness and love has provided for every step of the way for our salvation. He not only sends his son in history, he pours out his spirit um, to convict us and convince us. And all of this to rescue us once and for all time from sin and death. That's how kind God is. That's how wonderful and complete is the salvation that God has given us. And it's a salvation that we can be confident in. It's a salvation that moves us to be humble before God rather than proud in our sin. Um, It's a salvation that moves us to praise and to love God um, for his kindness to us. So we've had this beautiful summary of the kindness of God to people who don't deserve it. But this trustworthy saying is set in the middle of chapter 3, And Paul tells us next what we need to do with this trustworthy saying. See it in verse 8? This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. These things... Um, to be stressed are the things of the gospel that we've been hearing about. We've heard about them for most of this sermon because Paul says to stress these things. And the gospel saves anyone, um, and we now see the gospel moves those who believe to live a truly good life. Um, We'll be commissioning Tom, as we've heard, at at the 11am service this morning. In his ministry... Tom will need to keep stressing the gospel um, to us all at St Matthew's and he will relish your prayers for him that he will keep on doing that, that he'll keep on stressing the gospel. But it's the same for all of us, 
people like Tom and me and other stuff, we set the tone, but we are all to stress the gospel as excellent and profitable for everyone. And we are to avoid what is unprofitable and useless, futile arguments that we can fall into which have nothing to do with the gospel that Paul mentions in verse 9. Stress the gospel and avoid controversies. See, we're not only to agree about the gospel and nod our heads together, we're, we're to keep talking about the gospel. And the way that we never move away from it is by stressing it. We apply it to our own hearts. We keep talking about it as a church family because it's what we most need. Um, if we get distracted or caught up by other things, Paul would say, look, in every place and every time with everyone, stress these things more than anything else. Get into the habit of talking together about the gospel. If we keep stressing it, proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, then it will seep out into the rest of our lives as we talk about him in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community groups or wherever we are. And it's by stressing the gospel that those who believe will be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good, a theme that's a big one in this chapter and in the whole of Titus. And our final point this morning is this. This gospel-changed life is meant to overflow to others. As we, as we aim to speak about how unique and wonderful Jesus is, what will help us to gain a hearing with others is our devotion to doing what is good. It's just like Paul put it about the slaves in chapter 2. The quality of their lives is meant to make the gospel attractive. So I wonder, to relate this to our lives out there you know, in the world, are you viewed with suspicion or even hatred because you are a Christian? Maybe not right now, but if you keep on living a godly life in Christ Jesus, it'll happen sooner or later. Well, don't lose your nerve and don't cave in to fear. Um, I've experienced being sidelined and shut out from discussions in an office tea room because people knew that I'm, that I'm a Christian. But here is one thing that I learned from working in workplaces like that. Rather than retreat and, and keep quiet, remember that how you live is being watched and noticed. If you show integrity, if your life matches what you say, it will be noticed. So keep on talking about Jesus and keep on showing integrity as you live a life that matches what you say. Keep on taking those small steps of faith and love, living a truly good life that touches others in small but decisive ways, that, that in the end, we pray, ultimately impacts them for eternity. What does that life look like? It's right there at the very start of this chapter. Why didn't I start there? Well, because <laughs> we don't need to look at the gospel first. Look at it in verses 1 to 2. What's the good life look like? Remind the people to be subject to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always gentle to everyone. See, the gospel saves us and the gospel changes us. 
And it changes us from being like the people in verse 3 of this chapter to being like the people in verses 1 to 2. And it's a change that stands out in our culture. We're going to stand out in our culture if we live like verses 1 and 2, aren't we? The gospel changes us to be like God as from our lives flows the kindness, the love, the mercy, the grace, the generosity that God has shown to us. See, what kind of clear vision for the good life does our society really need? There's all talk about all sorts of visions for our society, but what does it really need? Where can we find a vision for our lives together as a society that's truly excellent and profitable for everyone? Our society desperately needs the gospel. It needs the kind of clear vision of our need and of what God can do that the gospel gives us, the gospel that saves, the gospel that changes us. So this year, um, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, keep talking about Jesus because um, you can be sure that the things of the gospel are excellent and profitable for everyone. And keep living gospel-changed lives um, so that in every way um, you make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. Let's pray. Our loving and our kind Heavenly Father, we Uh, We thank you for your rich mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Please enable us to grasp your mercy, to be assured that we're in right relationship with you, having the hope of eternal life. And by the grace of the gospel, please keep moving us to live a life that is devoted to doing what is good, to speaking and living out the gospel wherever we are, um, so that others may be saved and your name be glorified. Amen.